Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy that you would help us to see Jesus, that we would know him, his greatness and his love, and the extraordinary privilege we have as those who trust him. Please renew us and refresh us from your word. Help me to teach it truthfully and clearly as I ought. Help us to receive it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you ever have one of those disorienting weeks where you think you're living in a different world to your neighbours? I have had one of those weeks this last week. Uh, I mean, I live in the world as a believer in the Creator God, our Father, who's the source of our life and prosperity, and he is an active judge and where fear of him in this world, in my world, that trusting awe of him is is seen in obeying his uh, commands, is the source of the good life. It's a world where Jesus is Lord, where he lives, where he hears our prayers, is the loving saviour of all who turn to him and will return to judge the living and the dead. That's a world where God's judgments should be feared, his promises relied on, and where wholeness and healthiness, not just for individuals, but for society as well, is found in conforming your life to his will. That's the world I live in. But so many of my neighbours don't seem to live in that world. In fact, they seem to live in a world where you can get on with life ignoring God, untroubled by what he might think about how you behave, where you can cheerfully reject his commands without fear of consequences, where you can build your life and your society as you see fit to promote your own goals and ambitions, to express your own values, even where those are an open rejection of God and it doesn't matter. Oh, and where you can treat people who live in my world as weird, even a little suspect. Perhaps that's the world you're living in right now as you listen. Now, intellectually, I've known and accepted for years that I share our society with many who live without love for and loyalty to the living God, live ignorant of him. But sometimes that difference between my world and the world my neighbours are building around me bears down on me. I feel the difference and it disorients me as if I've woken up in an alien world, a world I don't belong in. Now, is it just me or do you feel like that sometimes? Because this week was one of those weeks when I just seemed to feel those differences. I mean, I've been reminded constantly that we're about to have a public holiday for a horse race. You may have gotten used to that, but a holiday for the public worship of chance and money. I turned on the news to find that a footballer coming out about his sexuality was of national significance and a cause of celebration. I've learnt that we're so dependent on gambling that Crown can be declared unfit and then allowed to keep operating. And in the background, I'm aware that the government has passed legislation to make private conversations between consenting adults about sexuality, not sedition, the subject of investigation and prosecution, and is about to amend legislation to limit the capacity of Christian organisations to employ staff committed to their mission that 
I live in a world where you can be sacked for not getting vaccinated after many years of service but can't be asked to leave when you no longer support the values of the Christian organisation that employs you. A world where we have been, by God's mercy, spared grievous loss in this pandemic and yet there is no public acknowledgement or public thanksgiving to him. When you have a week like that, You can feel the difference in the way you see the world and the way those around you see the world. And you can feel the discomfort, the disorientation of that difference. I, we can respond to that in a whole range of ways. You can, for example, wonder, am I right? I mean, those who ignore God seem happy and confident getting on with life is Being different, just, unnecessary, self-inflicted harm, should I change my mind to take God less seriously? Or because you do think you're right to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord Jesus, you can wonder, how can I keep living in this society? I mean, it's emotionally exhausting to live in a foreign culture, an alien world, to be the odd one out. It can get you down worrying about the direction of society? Should I just withdraw, stop watching the news, stop trying to engage, keep myself to myself and just hope things will improve? Or, you know, when I see the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy and the harm some of those actions and decisions do, should I just start to feel angry and self-righteous and start denouncing things? Sometimes we can actually experience all those reactions at once sitting in a corner and sighing one moment, at the next watching the news and getting grumpy and at the back of our head questioning, are we right? Do you ever get caught up in thoughts and emotions like that, like me? Up and down, now anxious, now angry, now just plain weary, now agitated. It was as I was experiencing a little of that through last week that I came to 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honoured by God. And it was a gift. In those few words, the reality of Jesus is held before our eyes. And when I read it, it's a bit like in the movies, you know, where one of the characters is going into a bit of a panic and the other gets him and gives him a good shake or a slap in the face and tells him to pull himself together. So God's actually saying, look at Jesus and pull yourself together so you can live well in an alien world. And that's what we're going to do from this passage this morning. We're going to look at Jesus, see his greatness. And then we're going to remember that the privilege his achievement has brought us as believers in Jesus. And then finally see how we can live well as his privileged followers in this world. In verses 4 to 8 of our passage, Peter reminds us of Jesus' reality through an Old Testament image that of the cornerstone, and through Old Testament texts used by Jesus himself in Matthew 21 to teach about himself. 
The cornerstone was, as we've heard in the children's talk, the stone that was the key in those days to the stability and shape of the whole building, the one on whom the whole building depended. The whole building had to be in line, square with the cornerstone. And Peter's reminder starts in this verse with the gospel. As you come to him, a living stone. Jesus is living, the living stone, because he is risen. He lives now even though he was rejected by people. That's what we read in the gospel. The Lord Jesus came to his people, he taught, he performed wonders among them, and in the end they just wanted to get rid of him. He was crucified, which is about as emphatic a rejection as you can get. That's a lot more than just being told to shut up. They shamed and then killed him. So he'd never trouble them again, be out of their lives forever, someone they wouldn't even want to remember. But the story didn't end there. We're talking about a living stone. God raised Jesus from the dead because he was chosen and honoured by God. You see, Jesus wasn't like modern heroes on a write-your-own-adventure, you know, leaving Nazareth to find themselves in fulfilling their personal dreams. Jesus was about doing his Father God's will, fulfilling God's plan and purpose in his death and rising. He was chosen, the one sent to save his people and honour the beloved Son, the one to whom the fathers entrusted his kingdom, his rule. And Peter, remember, knew that personally. Peter had witnessed Jesus' sufferings. He'd witnessed the risen Jesus. Our Lord appeared to Peter and spoke with him repeatedly after he rose. Peter was the one who declared to the people of Jerusalem, God has raised this Jesus and of that we are all witnesses. Peter knows Jesus is the living Lord, once rejected, now reigning. But in verse 4, he's deliberately used language from a couple of Old Testament passages to bring home what Jesus, being the living stone rejected and exalted, means for those who believe and for those who don't, for those who want to keep living like many as if you can ignore God and build your life without him. And in verses 6 to 8, as you heard, he turns to those passages Firstly, Isaiah 28, 16, for it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honoured cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's a reminder that Jesus in his death and rising was fulfilling the plan of God. And secondly, it's a reminder that those who trust him, who believe in him, they are the ones who will emerge triumphant with honour in the judgment of God. Now let me unpack that by thinking a little with you about the context of Isaiah 28 because Peter's actually like that scribe Jesus talked about in Matthew 13 who brings out of his treasure store old and new. God had said there in Isaiah 28 through Isaiah more than 700 years before Jesus' birth that he would have this cornerstone the one on whom he would build his renewed people and the one on whom God's people could rely wholly, trusting whom would never be a cause of shame to them. 
In Isaiah 28, the, the Lord has just pronounced his judgment on Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, for rejecting his word. And then in verse 14, Isaiah turns to address the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, and especially the rulers of Jerusalem. They were scoffing at the word of God and were confident in their own capacity to keep themselves safe. They were finding their security in their own choices and decisions, their idols and lies. They said, we've made a covenant with death. With Sheol, we have an over an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. They had a refuge in their own ideas and their own gods. And so God says to them in verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be put to shame, as it says in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. See, God responds to their arrogance by saying safety in his judgment. The judgment he will send on their proud rebellion will only be found in him, in God, in his provision, in turning to him, found in his cornerstone, the one in whom and by whom he will rebuild his people. Because God says he is going to judge justly, expose the emptiness of their lives by measuring what they construct by their lives against the true and sure cornerstone he provides. I'll make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And their refuge will be destroyed. In Isaiah 28, you see, God was giving the people of Israel a choice to trust in themselves and die in their lives or to trust in God's provision, God's cornerstone, and be secure. To save those who believe in his cornerstone, God's chosen one, had always been God's plan. (coughs) And in the gospel, Jesus is revealed as that one, the one in whom God's people can find salvation, safety in that judgment on human pride the one who will never fail or let down those who trust in him, never expose them to the shame which those who believe lies about themselves and God will face. Jesus being the cornerstone and to save those who believe through him was something God had planned and purposed from long ago. For salvation from deserved judgment is always going to be God's way through God's provision and only his way, never man's way. The people of Jerusalem had a choice to trust in God's provision or not and in Jesus' fulfilment of that prophecy in his being God's precious and chosen cornerstone, now that choice is everyone's choice as they hear the gospel. It's our choice to either keep on trusting in ourselves and our lives or to believe in Jesus, rejected, but now living and exalted. And that is a choice, as Peter shows in verse 7, that comes with 
consequences. We've learnt about choices with consequences, haven't we, with this whole vaccination thing? Well, this is a choice with much bigger consequences. God making Jesus the cornerstone who will never let those who trust him down means, verse 7, that there is honour for those who believe, the honour of being amongst God's saved people. And Peter's going to give us a glimpse of the rich content of that honour in this passage. But it will also mean shame and judgment for those who don't believe. Peter goes to the next Old Testament quote from Psalm 118 to bring out the consequences of God making Jesus the cornerstone for those who will not humble themselves and believe in Jesus. But for the unbelieving, he said, the stone the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. God making Jesus the cornerstone, revealing him as the foundation of God's people, the source of salvation, means that those who reject him, first the rulers of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, but then all who want to build their life, create their society without him, are convicted of a great error. Firstly, they are shown to be wrong about who rules, who rules the world. You see, Psalm 118 is about God's king returning from victory over his enemies, an unlikely victory worked by God, a wonderful reversal. But the builders had taken the side of God's enemies. They'd written this king off, dismissed him. God's action completely reverses their judgment and it exposes their folly. You see, the psalm is now fulfilled in Jesus. God's action in raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him to his right hand and entrusting to him the spirit to pour out upon his people exposes just how wrong those rulers in Jerusalem were who condemned him. Just shows just how wrong they were. And those same events, that victory of Jesus over death and lies and hatred in his resurrection, expose those who don't believe in him now as wrong in rejecting Jesus, wrong in thinking that they can build their lives without him, build him out of their lives. And they're not just exposed as wrong, they're exposed, as we heard in the children's talk, as foolish builders. Without Jesus, they are building without foundation. They don't have the peace that makes what they build secure and safe and sure. And so what they build will not be able to withstand the testing of God's judgment. Rejecting Jesus exposes them to shame. You see, they claim the authority to decide, to shape the building, to construct for themselves their security and hope and in their pride that pushes Jesus away, they are completely wrong and are already demonstrated to be wrong for the Lord Jesus is already proclaimed to be, already seen to be in his resurrection, the precious cornerstone, the one on whom all must build, in whom all must believe to find safety in the judgment. And the consequences of this wrong choice of rejecting Jesus, ignoring him, can't be avoided because Jesus is not going away. In the end, he can't be ignored. 
Quoting Isaiah 8, Peter says, Jesus is a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. In Isaiah 7 and 8, the people of Jerusalem were very disturbed about external events, the assault on Jerusalem by their neighbours and then the rise of the great power of Syria. And God had sent them to his prophet Isaiah a word that said safety and security could be found in trusting him, in being his people, by trusting his word and keeping his covenant. But the king Ahaz and the people chose to reject that word and find their own security in their treaties and intrigues, putting their trust in themselves, in people, and not in God. So in response to them, God had said through Isaiah, Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of hosts, of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He's saying, I'm God and there is no other. I'm the only one to fear. And God goes on and says, because he is Lord, He will be a sanctuary for those who trust him, for those who believe his word. But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. He'll be the judge of all who reject him, that stone to stumble over, the one who will bring all their unbelieving plans to ruin. And now Peter applies this, what the Lord has said of himself to Jesus and the consequences of unbelief, of choosing to trust yourself and not God to those who won't believe the gospel that Jesus is Lord. To continue to reject him is to bring upon yourself your own destruction for the Lord Jesus lies across everyone's path. There is no path to a better future that's found by trying to step over or around Christ. He is there. Now, Jesus will not be anything but Lord now. He's not going to change to accommodate our desires to be in charge, to do as we please. He won't abdicate. He is God's king and he should not. For it's as king he brings life, he saves, and that there is only salvation in him. But as king he will also be the one who judges all who choose to keep on ignoring, rejecting and disobeying God's righteous commands. You see, the Lord Jesus, being who he is, divides. He brings salvation and judgment. He'll either save those who put their trust in him or judge those who continue to ignore and reject God by not believing God's gospel. And all this is by God's will. This too is God's plan that the one who saves those who believe should be the one who brings judgment on those who persevere in sin, on those who continue to reject God their creator. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined to do this. Those who will not believe the word, who want, like the people of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, to keep putting their trust in themselves, their own schemes and efforts, are appointed to stumble at Christ, 
to take offence at the call to repent and believe in a crucified, a rejected Saviour and so bring God's judgment upon themselves. Are you troubled from time to time by people's dismissal of Jesus, their unconcerned ignoring of him, their insistence on building their lives and society without him, wondering if you're right? Well, think of the glory and the greatness of Jesus, the living stone. Rejection doesn't stop him from being who he is, God's exalted king, the sure saviour of his people. In fact, it was through rejection, his crucifixion, that he was revealed as the cornerstone, God's chosen and precious one, the fulfiller of God's great saving plan. You see, that rejection served, not frustrated, the fulfilment of God's word. serves God's great good. And rejection is not outside his rule. In rejecting Jesus and ignoring him, people aren't escaping Jesus' rule. That rejection and ignoring of Jesus is the means God uses to exercise his judgment on their proud rebellion, the cause of their stumbling. So rather than be angry, we should tremble for them as we see them ignoring the truth of Jesus. And for believers, this conviction of the greatness and glory of Jesus is more than a conviction of the historical truth of the gospel or of a set of ideas. Uh, Like newborn infants, we are those who have tasted that the Lord is good. Ours is an experienced reality Believers have tasted that the Lord is kind or good and the measure of that kindness is seen on the privileges bestowed on believers in Jesus and their source in God's mercy. What is given to believers in Jesus? Well, as you come to him, it says, a living stone rejected by people and chosen and honoured by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? By the work of the Spirit of God, we become like Jesus, living stones ourselves and are fitted to live in God's presence by his Spirit to be a spiritual house or temple. That's what Peter calls believers, having new life from the Spirit, And indwelt by God's spirit, we now live in God's presence always and he lives amongst us. And that tells us that believers matter to God just as his house matters to him. We are secured by his presence for he is zealous to protect his house. And believing in Jesus, we are being built up, it says, to be a holy priesthood those set apart to him who can safely enter into his presence. And there we offer spiritual sacrifices, that is, give him acceptable worship through Christ. And again, this speaks of a continuing secure relationship with the holy God through Christ. Our sacrifice is always acceptable to him through Christ. 
And this also speaks an extraordinary transformation, not just of worship, but of the significance of our lives. For the whole of our lives lived in the power of the Spirit is the sacrifice we offer in response to God's kindness. Now, just think about that. Think about what they understood of priesthood. You see, the language of priesthood was the language of special people, special activities like animal sacrifices, special places like temples, oh, yes, and special times when priests could make those special sacrifices. But now, says Peter, every believer can come all the time, wherever they are, to offer our lives lived in the spirit all because of what Jesus has done, his atoning death, his being rejected by people, to offer our lives and be accepted by God. Now, there's a lot to think about there. But as you go about your life trusting and obeying Jesus, changed by the Spirit to want to live pleasing to him, being faithful in your work, in your parenting, in your conversation, in loving your enemies, in forgiving... Because of what Jesus has done, you are offering worship in God's presence. Think about that. As you cut the kids' lunches, as you deal with that difficult customer, as you speak to your neighbour about the Lord Jesus, as you care for that ageing parent, a patient with that upset family member, as you humble yourself to obey the government, as you turn your eyes away from sexually immodest images, You are offering a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to the great, the true, the holy and living God through Jesus Christ. Believer, the Lord Jesus has given you a life that matters, that matters to God and that can be lived in a confident relationship with God through his son Christ every day. That's the privilege. The Lord Jesus gives us in his kindness. And Peter enlarges, in a sense, on that privilege, the honour of a believer's life, by applying the Old Testament titles of Israel's privilege to believers in Jesus, to those who are now in Christ, God's people. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Peter's drawing on Exodus 19 where a God addressed Israel at Mount Sinai and Isaiah 43, 21 where the Lord speaks of their second Exodus, their deliverance from Babylon. And he's saying to believers in Jesus, whatever their background, you're a chosen race. You're the ones called by God like Abraham and his descendants to be at the centre of God's plans for his world, to bear his promises to the world, to be the people through whom God will show his glory in the history of the world by fulfilling those promises. And you're a royal priesthood, royal because we belong to the king and so share in his rule, a priesthood because we have access to God and can intercede for the world a holy nation set apart from the world for God and so committed to holy lives, to being given and living by God's good law, set apart and so special and dear to him, a people for his own possession, precious to him, such that those who attack us, believers, are attacking God, 
those who are trying to detach us from God, will face his fierce jealousy for those he loves. In a world where Christ's people share in Christ's treatment by the world, where we can feel marginalised or even excluded by those who trust in themselves, never, never are believers in Jesus anything less than dear and precious to God, recognised as his own, the ones who will enjoy the fulfilment of his promises in the new heaven and earth. They are never forgotten, never at the periphery of his vision. They are right at the centre of his purposes for the world. And the source of all this privilege of our experience of the Lord's kindness is mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is all by mercy. The mercy Peter started his letter praising as the source of our new birth in Christ. Now Peter alludes here to Hosea 2 to let us in a sense to convey the greatness of that mercy. You see in Hosea Israel was likened to a prostitute. (laughs) It seemed to have broken the covenant to be like the Gentiles, idolaters, worshipping lies and worse unfaithful, ungrateful, despising God's kindness, fully and only deserving rejection by God, but promised hope, hope of restoration by God's gracious mercy that could forgive even their idolatry. But in Christ, what was promised to rebellious Israel actually has been opened up to now include idolatrous Gentiles, people like you and I who worship lies about God, who worshipped ourselves. So great is that mercy, opened up to all. So great the mercy that provided Christ as the lamb without fault or blemish to redeem us. Now perhaps you don't need the reference to Hosea to see the wonder of God's mercy. You know that well enough. You know well enough your own ingratitude and disobedience and what you deserve from God, death and hell, and feel the wonder every day of being forgiven, included in God's people, and it is a wonder. Or perhaps the reference to Hosea assures you, as you understand it, that God can have mercy even on you. It should. Israel's was spit in your eye contempt of the living holy God. That's what their sin was. Enriched by his kindness, knowing his will and then doing exactly the opposite. It's the kind of sin many of us who have grown up in Christian families commit where we knowingly disobey the living God, where we lie or steal or gossip or slander or commit sexual immorality knowing he has forbidden that. Yet mercy was promised and mercy is found in Jesus for all. For you, if you repent, confess your sin to the living God and seek forgiveness from him. Because of who Jesus is, believers in Jesus are a people of extraordinary privilege, living stones, becoming like our Lord, welcome in the living God's presence. 
included in Christ, in God's people, an heir to all God's promises in him. So how do we live in this world, a world where we feel like aliens? Actually, no, it's more than that. Whereby God's grace, because of the privileges he bestows on us in Christ, we are aliens, sojourners, staying for a few years on our journey to the fulfilment of God's promises, people who should not feel at home in a world where Jesus is not honoured as Lord, where the builders are still rejecting him. Well, Peter tells us how to live here. Therefore, he says, Rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation since or if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Firstly, we should live in this world as those who know that their life in this world is sustained by another source and crave that life-sustaining nourishment. Since, because it's not in doubt for believers, you have tasted that the Lord is good, like newborn infants desire pure spiritual milk, so that by it you might grow up to salvation. As a newborn longs for its mother's milk instinctively, eagerly, incessantly, so in this life we should long for what will keep us alive until the salvation of the end, the salvation revealed with the coming of Jesus. See, milk here is not used for the diet of of the spiritually immature. This is actually a powerful image of a thirsty dependence which every believer should know every day of their lives. But what is this milk? Well, the CSB has identified that milk as the milk of the word saying that the word that gave us new birth is the word that will sustain our new life to the end and that we should long to keep drinking in God's word, faithfully taught, unadulterated by false teaching. Now that's true and the word is undoubtedly included in pure spiritual milk. But the word translated spiritual actually has a wider sense. In some contexts it means reasonable, but at its heart the sense is true to its real Nature. Peter is urging believers, having tasted the goodness of the Lord, to long for to keep drinking in milk that is true to the nature of the Lord. Milk, food that will mediate the grace of Christ to us, to to long for all that will keep us feeding on the goodness of the Lord Jesus. We are to crave this milk, to desire it wholeheartedly. That is where to desire wholeheartedly a way of life characterised by attention to the word, to prayer, to sharing in the Lord's Supper, a way of life characterised by daily trusting obedience in Jesus, which all bring to us every day the goodness of Jesus. And hear that word desire. Believers can't be indifferent to what will sustain their life to eternal life. If we're to live, thrive, grow to the fulfilment of our salvation, we must long for, seek always what will give us more of Christ and we should do it as if our life depended on it, just as a baby depends on its mother's milk. Think, a baby will quickly decline 
if it went for a day or two without a feed. Yet some of us, sadly, think we can be healthy not reading God's word, not praying, not meeting with his people, can go for weeks like that. No. We should desire, crave all that gives us more of Christ. So we should be reading and meditating on his word. We should be constant in prayer. We should have a passion to meet with his people. We should want a life lived in step with the Spirit every day. So our life is sustained by his life to eternal life. We live in this world craving more of Jesus, to be sustained by his life. And we're to live in this world, says Peter, as people who are true to their calling, as people called to proclaim the praises or the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Now, this is not talking primarily of singing. It's speaking of witnessing to God's greatness in his saving works, both in the world by our faithful lives lived in obedience to his word and to the world by our faithful words that speak his gospel word. See, we're called to proclaim in word and deed how good God is, how good we know God is in his saving his people through his son Jesus, that rejected chosen one. We're called to proclaim his faithfulness in keeping his promises to his people, in his justice that would not let the innocent be crushed, his righteousness in the justice and steadfast love shown in upholding his covenant commitment to his people through the death of his son for their sin. Oh, his might in raising his son from the dead and, yes, his mercy, the wonder of his mercy in calling us from darkness to light, from death to life, from bondage to lies to the freedom of the truth. There is so much to call people to wonder at and admire in the rich salvation we have in Jesus. <coughs> so many reasons, having tasted God's kindness ourselves, to say to our neighbours, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We live in the world. We live in this world by looking up, craving more of Christ and looking out, longing for others to know for themselves the excellencies, the wonderful saving work of our God. When like me, you know, when like me this week, you feel disoriented and discouraged by our world's ignoring of God, its determination to build the Lord Jesus out of our world, to live as if he doesn't matter and has nothing to contribute to a full and flourishing life. When you're discouraged by that, take a breath and think of Jesus. Let his word direct your heart again to the truth about him, that he is the stone the builders rejected, who has become through that rejection the cornerstone, the sure saviour of all who believe in him, 
the source of the extraordinary privilege believers now have of becoming like him, of being welcomed in the living God's presence forever, of being included in him, in the people of God, a people precious to the almighty God. Let his word direct your heart again to the truth about him so you can say with the psalmist, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. And knowing then that every day of our sojourn in this world, as we proclaim the excellencies of our God to the world, is a day when we can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. No matter what the godless are doing, let us rejoice and be glad. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have had mercy on us And we thank you that you call us now to proclaim your excellencies in the world, to declare the wonder of your might and love that would send Jesus into the world and through the world's rejection make him the saviour of the world, the cornerstone, the true and reliable saviour who will never let his people down. Help us to know, we pray, more and more of his goodness. Make us people who long for, who crave to know more of the life of Christ, to drink that in so that we are sustained by him in this world until that great salvation you have promised us and so that we can live like him in this world, true to you, doing your will, and loving and calling others to come to know your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.